Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Friedrich Nietzsche. Now let's begin our story about Friedrich Nietzsche. When contemplating the life and works of Friedrich Nietzsche, one must inevitably confront many fundamental questions. What does it all mean? What does any of it mean? How did a 5-foot-8-inch, 120-pound, half-blind, sickly, lifelong bachelor formulate a philosophical outlook so powerful that it would influence such polar opposites as John Paul Sartre and Adolf Hitler. Nietzsche was retired by age 34 and an intellectual outcast from academia with most of his works initially selling only a few hundred copies. He would spend the last decade of his life helplessly unable to write anything of any consequence and betrayed by the greed and egomania of a family member. What were the events that comprised the singular and solitary existence of an individual who tightrope the knife edge between genius and insanity before falling helplessly into the abyss. Friedrich Nietzsche was born in Rocken, Germany, on October 15, 1844. In July of 1849, Nietzsche's father, a 35-year-old minister, died of an indeterminate brain condition, forcing the family to move to the nearby town of Naumburg. Both of these locations are in the Saxony region, former German Democratic Republic, approximately 30 miles southwest of the city of Leipzig. Nietzsche's mother, Franziska, found temporary living space until permanently settling the family in a three-story house at Weingarten, 18, a dwelling that would play a prominent role not only in the remainder of Nietzsche's childhood, but in his final years as well. Nietzsche's younger brother, Ludwig, died at the age of two, leaving Elizabeth as his only other sibling. His mother would rely on a modest widow's pension and help from nearby relatives to raise her two children. From an early age, Nietzsche was serious and scholarly, writing both plays and musical pieces and learning to play the piano before the age of 10. Nietzsche attended public and private schools before winning a scholarship at the age of 14 to attend the Schulpforte, a prominent regional boarding school. Here he would spend the next six years, and although a homesick mama's boy to some degree, he would thoroughly enjoy the rigorous and classical academic environment. Perhaps this austere setting contributed to a subsequent unproductive year studying at university in Bonn, his time focused mostly on music and fraternity carousing. After only a year at Bonn, Nietzsche relocated to the University of Leipzig in 1865, ostensibly to follow a prominent professor Friedrich Ritschel, but more likely to be closer to his family home. Based on letters to some of his friends and contemporaries, it is clear that Nietzsche had already developed a philosophical attachment to Hegel, Kant, Emerson, and especially the doom and gloom of Schopenhauer. He already possessed a deep skepticism of Christianity, a perspective that his Lutheran mother found very troubling. In September of 1867, 
Nietzsche was drafted into the Prussian army. Despite his growing dislike of German nationalism and militarism in general, he enjoyed the physical exertion of the military until he was injured in March of 1868. A cavalryman, he tore pectoral muscles and fractured bones in his chest after an accident while riding a horse, an injury that effectively ended his first military assignment. Taking five months to recover, he then returned to his studies at Leipzig. Via Professor Ritschel, some of Nietzsche's essays on music came to the attention of Ottilie Wagner, a resident of Leipzig and the sister of composer Richard Wagner. When Wagner next visited, he not only insisted on meeting this young student, but upon making Nietzsche's acquaintance, the composer invited him to visit at his lakeside villa at Tribschen, Switzerland, near Lucerne. The invitation is fortuitous, as the young scholar's life was about to take an unexpected turn. Although he had not completed his university studies, Nietzsche had already published articles in several respected academic journals of philology. His mentor, Ritchell, had also talked him up to some of his former colleagues at the philology department at the University of Basel. Ultimately, the university extended an offer to the 24-year-old college student to join their faculty as a professor, a stunning achievement, especially as Nietzsche was considering changing his field of study to chemistry. In April of 1869, Nietzsche relocated from Naumburg to Basel and began teaching and lecturing. He also continued with his own writings and the first outlines of a book. Nietzsche's posting brought him closer to Wagner, the king of the music for the future. On a three-day weekend holiday in May, the newly minted professor set out for Lucerne, ostensibly for a boat trip on the surrounding lakes, but also to stop in unannounced at Wagner's villa. Upon leaving his card with a servant, Nietzsche was rewarded with a brief meeting and an invitation to lunch on Monday. When he returned, Nietzsche not only dined with the composer, he met Wagner's mistress, Cosima von Bülow, and her four young children. Wagner's relationship with this woman, the illegitimate daughter of Franz Liszt, was the main reason for the composer's relocation from Munich, where his relationship with the wife of prominent conductor Hans von Bülow had fomented an embarrassing scandal for the Bavarian king Ludwig II. Ludwig, Wagner's main patron, had finally relented to court pressure, and despite the monarch's willingness to continue to generously support the composer, he requested that Wagner leave Munich. Cosima's pregnancy with the third child she would have by the composer added to the intrigue. At least one very famous 20th century criminal defendant must have been aware of this historical soap opera. A Dane by the name of Klaus Cecil Borberg, when casting about for a more prestigious-sounding pseudonym, hit upon von Bülow. When Klaus subsequently married a wealthy heiress, Sonny von Auersberg, nay Crawford, the couple named their only child Cosima. It was all downhill from there, especially for Sonny. Nietzsche's familiarity with Wagner's music and his knowledge of classical literature so ingratiated him with both Richard Wagner and Cosima von Bülow that he was immediately invited to visit Tribschen again. The young professor returned on June 5th and was present when Cosima, not understanding how advanced her pregnancy really was, suddenly went into labor in the middle of the night. She gave birth to a son, Wagner's first, named Siegfried, of course, and Nietzsche returned to Basel early, not wanting to interfere with such an intimate moment. Cosima von Bülow would soon send him a letter, essentially issuing an open invitation to visit the villa whenever he chose, and Nietzsche took full advantage. These visits proved so agreeable to all concerned that Wagner extended an invitation to visit over the Christmas holiday. 
Into this idyllic existence, international reality suddenly reared its head. In July of 1870, France and Napoleon III declared war on Prussia. To obtain his university post, Nietzsche had renounced his Prussian citizenship, and he was critical of the nationalist fervor and militarism that was sweeping the German Confederation. But, perhaps guilt-ridden over the sacrifices of many German students who were eagerly volunteering for service, Nietzsche applied to his employers to be granted temporary faculty leave in order to enlist. The leave was granted so long as his service consisted of medical assistance to the wounded. By mid-August, the professor found himself in a hospital in Erlangen, Germany, training with other medics in the basics of combat medicine. For the next month, he observed and treated frontline combat injuries until he himself contracted dysentery and diphtheria and was sent back to hospital in Erlangen. While stationed in the Alsace, Nietzsche received a letter from Cosima von Bülow informing him that she and Richard Wagner had finally married. Nietzsche remained so ill that he was ultimately sent to his mother's home in Naumburg to recuperate. In October, he returned to his teaching duties in Basel. By now, the luster of his professional stature had worn off to the extent that Nietzsche viewed his lecturing and academic activity as drudgery. His continued trips and interaction with Wagner and his determination to publish a more daring approach to philosophical analysis only added to a general malaise. By mid-January of 1871, after again spending the Christmas holidays not with his own family but at Tribschen, Nietzsche began to suffer acute attacks of the ailments that had plagued him since his teenage years. Migraine headaches, eye strain, sleeplessness, and digestive difficulties all became especially severe after a failed attempt at filling a professorial vacancy at the university's philosophy department. The young professor was also consumed by the process of assembling various notes, lectures, and essays into what would become his first published work, The Birth of Tragedy, a treatise on the origins of Greek tragedy that would also involve an analysis of music, which would be highly complementary to the work of Richard Wagner. While visiting his mother, Nietzsche submitted his manuscript to a Leipzig publisher of musical pamphlets and periodicals, including works authored by Richard Wagner. Although the publisher found the complex manuscript virtually indecipherable, a strong letter of recommendation by Wagner himself compelled him to publish The Birth of Tragedy. A modest first edition of 800 copies was printed in January of 1872, with an advanced copy sent to Wagner as well. The composer was thrilled with the book's contents, especially its characterization of his music as a return to the true nature of the traditional tragedies of the ancient Greeks. That this assertion would appear in a volume composed by an academic only added to the perpetually self-interested Wagner's zeal for the young professor. Unfortunately, most of the traditional academic community did not share Wagner's enthusiasm. Nietzsche deliberately omitted the numerous footnotes that usually appeared throughout such an undertaking. He also failed to acknowledge previous relevant philological discussions and even included an examination of the current state of popular music as it related to Greek tragedy, a practically blasphemous inclusion for a purportedly scholarly analysis. Nietzsche and Wagner were actually delighted by the academic establishment's response to his bold presentation and unorthodox ideas. It was his conviction that the emergence of German literary excellence of the late 18th and 19th centuries, Goethe, Hegel, Schiller et al., 
had been extinguished by a subsequent educational emphasis on rote learning and scientific research. In a series of lectures delivered in the winter and spring of 1872 to the general public of Basel, Nietzsche reiterated this criticism of the educational status quo. Nietzsche continued his frequent visits to Tribschen, where he listened to updates concerning Wagner's plan to construct a cultural center and opera house in the small Bavarian town of Bayreuth. It had been the composer's dream to return not to some German metropolis like Munich or Berlin, but to relocate to an environment solely devoted to him and his music. While Ludwig II was supportive of the concept, he was not as supportive of the price tag, an eventuality that forced Wagner to personally relocate from Switzerland in an attempt to raise the requisite funding himself. No longer would Nietzsche be able to conveniently drop in for solitary interaction with one of Germany's most dazzling personalities, a development that didn't help the young professor's frequently depressive countenance. This outlook was also darkened by the fallout from Nietzsche's book and lectures resulting in a chorus of disdain from academics all over Germany. While his unconventional and caustic viewpoint had generated attention, it did little for his career. Virtually no students signed up for his fall 1872 classes, and some students formerly interested in classical studies actually left the university for greener, less controversial pastures. Nietzsche would continue with his work at an adjunct high school, but for the moment he was a professor in exile. At the very least, this development allowed him more time to contemplate the topic of his next book. Unfortunately, this creative and professional stress exacerbated Nietzsche's already pronounced psychosomatic tendencies to the point where he suffered extreme bouts of nausea and blinding headaches that affected his vision and ability to read and write. The prescribed cure was a cessation of teaching and an extended stay in a remote high-altitude environment. Nietzsche spent the summer of 1873 composing the first in a series of essays that would ultimately be combined into a collection entitled Untimely Meditations. Essay number one was a polemic directed at David Strauss, the author of a recent and popular study of modern Christianity that Nietzsche vilified as an example of the current shallow product of modern academia. While much of this essay was an extremely meticulous refutation of Strauss's work that today would seem esoteric, it begins with a cautionary passage attempting to deflate euphoria surrounding Germany's victory over France. The very first paragraph of David Strauss, the confessor, and the writer ends with the remarkably prescient sentence. But because it could transform our victory into a total defeat, the defeat, the extirpation of the German spirit on behalf of the German Reich, the skepticism of German military nationalism and its consequences would be a major theme in Nietzsche's work and personal outlook. Nietzsche would add three more sections to his untimely meditations, the fourth and final essay entitled Richard Wagner in Bayreuth, a generally positive examination of the composer, but far from the unbridled enthusiasm of earlier days. This was indicative of an increasing gulf between the two men. Wagner had always envisioned Nietzsche as a prestigious academic proponent of his work and his vision, but as Nietzsche struggled with both physical ailments and social dysfunction, it became obvious that the young professor would probably always remain on the fringe. The egocentric composer would begin to look elsewhere to enlarge his profile and stature. In July of 1875, Nietzsche also learned of the death of Wilhelm Vischer, a member of the city of Basel's educational board, his mentor and the man most instrumental in getting him hired initially. 
Vischer's replacement would undoubtedly not be as supportive of such an unpredictable renegade. While writing untimely meditations, Nietzsche got word that his current publisher, Ernst Fritsch, was financially unable to pay royalties or issue additional material. Luckily, another publisher by the name of Ernst Schmeitzner was interested in publishing his work. With the conclusion of Richard Wagner in Bayreuth, Nietzsche began composing another manuscript, a work that would reflect his growing skepticism of Wagner and a complete reversal from previous analysis. It would also be written in a format that was both radical and necessitated by the philosopher's physical inability to focus on lengthy traditional composition. Instead, the book, ultimately entitled Human, All Too Human, published in April of 1878, was a collection of aphorisms followed by a brief discussion. In fact, this newfound style was partially the result of a deterioration of Nietzsche's physical condition, which only allowed for brief periods of concentration. By October of 1878, three different physicians had concluded that Nietzsche's eye issues were so severe that without a total cessation of reading and writing of any kind, he would eventually go completely blind. The university did reduce the professor's workload, and a succession of friends and students helped by copying dictation and proofreading manuscripts. 1878 would also bring a final break with Ricard and Cosima Wagner. Her last letter to Nietzsche in 1877 would offhandedly mention the arrival in Bayreuth of Hans von Wolzigen, who would be assisting Wagner by providing editorial help on the composer's newly created journal. A year later, after Human, all too human, she and her husband were far more critical of the new direction and attitudes of Nietzsche, going so far as to burn the dozens of letters they had received from him over the years. The end of 1878, with memories of Tribschen now a thing of the past and Nietzsche no closer to finding a companion to augment his rather solitary existence, did little to improve his health. Through most of his years at Basel, at least some of Nietzsche's loneliness was assuaged by the presence of his sister Elizabeth, who lived with him and handled many of his domestic needs. But in 1878, Elizabeth moved back to Naumburg to be closer to her mother. Nietzsche, perhaps mindful of his potentially deteriorating financial situation, left his large apartment for a much more modest dwelling on the outskirts of Basel. Merely completing his university lectures required most of his physical stamina. His work on a second edition to Human, All Too Human, was limited to 15-minute intervals. But the provocative nature of his published work had raised his status in the academic community, with students flocking to his fall semester classes. In March 1879, a miscellany of opinions and maxims, a continuation of the style and analysis of Human, All Too Human, was released. Its reiteration of some of the ideas of the first volume, especially criticism of Christianity as nothing more than limiting folklore, did little to diminish Nietzsche's status as a blasphemous apostate. The author's nervousness over the reception of his latest work and difficulties with his publisher so exacerbated his medical condition that by the end of March he had ceased lecturing entirely. He left Basel for Geneva, convinced that the city's environment was one of the causes for his ongoing illness. By May 2nd, Nietzsche would dictate a letter to the university chairman, accompanied by information from two physicians, indicating that he was physically incapable of continuing to lecture and requesting that he be allowed to vacate his position. This request was granted, and most likely through the intercession of some of his colleagues, including his close friends and fellow professors Franz Overbeck 
and Jacob Burkhardt, the school ultimately granted him an annual pension of 3,000 francs for six years. Ultimately, this sum, approximately $15,000 by today's standards, would be awarded for the duration of his illness. This was fortunate news, as Nietzsche's publisher had recently informed him that about 100 copies of Human All Too Human had been sold, a drastically poor figure. The now-retired 34-year-old professor would immediately set out for the Engadine Valley of southern Switzerland and the resort town of Samaritz in hopes that the region's high altitude, forested walkways, and fresh air would improve his physical condition. Thus would begin the second phase of Nietzsche's adult life, a decade which he spent wandering through various parts of Switzerland, Germany, Italy, and France, literally living out of a suitcase. Fittingly enough, Nietzsche's next and final addendum to Human All Too Human would be entitled The Wanderer and His Shadow. Released in 1880, it would contain the familiar aphorisms and brief analytical paragraphs. Through most of 1880, Nietzsche remained in a constant state of travel, starting in Venice with friend and transcriber Heinrich Koselitz, in Marianbad, onto his family home in Naumburg, and ultimately finishing the year in Genoa. Nietzsche's own handwriting was so illegible that it required a virtual translation by associates familiar with his writing style. If he was not staying with an acquaintance, he would typically find some inexpensive rooming house where he would spend his days writing letters and working on his latest manuscript, moving on when he perceived that the local climate was prompting the headaches, nausea, and nervous seizures that made concentration difficult. Genoa must have agreed with him as the advent of 1881 brought news to his associate, Kosolitz that a new manuscript would be forthcoming shortly. Entitled Morgenrote, roughly translated as Daybreak or Dawn, this work focused on Christianity and Nietzsche's issues with it. Today, it remains one of his most obscure and unread works. By the summer of 1881, Nietzsche was back in Switzerland's Engadine region, having decided that of all the places he had visited, this was the most amenable to his health. Unfortunately, the onset of winter necessitated that he move, and so he returned to Genoa, already at work on a much more positive writing project, the working title of which was appropriately The Joyous Science. Nietzsche's typically monastic existence was interrupted in February of 1882 by the visit of a close friend, writer and philosopher Paul Rhee. Rhee was the German son of wealthy parents who had shunned any traditional career for that of perpetual student and intellectual. He had studied under Nietzsche in Basel, and his former professor was pleased to see him. Rhee's visit would set the stage for a sequence of events that would culminate in the bizarre triangle that ensued between Nietzsche, Rhee, and a 21-year-old university student by the name of Louise Lou Salome. Ultimately, this process would include a set of characters that would seem as if they had walked off of the pages of a Victorian novel. Rhee left Genoa intent on taking up the invitation of writer and intellectual Malvida von Meisenburg to visit her in Rome. Von Meisenburg was a mutual acquaintance of Nietzsche and Rhee, a practically maternal figure who had previously discussed the concept of creating an intellectual colony comprised of their small social set and including Nietzsche's sister, Elizabeth, presumably because someone had to do the laundry. 
Rhee was so destitute that he had to borrow money from Nietzsche for the train ticket, perhaps the result of a side trip to Monte Carlo, a bad destination for an admitted compulsive gambler. In his correspondence with Nietzsche, he implored him to come to Rome and also frequently referred to a new female addition to this circle. Lou Salome and her mother had fled her native St. Petersburg when the minister entrusted with her tutelage had suddenly made it quite clear that he intended to dissolve his marriage and wed Lou. After a year, the pair left Zurich when the young student had a similar effect on a professor of a class she was auditing. Once in Rome, a letter from a mutual acquaintance got her admitted to Malvita's intellectual clique, where she impressed and charmed all concerned with unusual intelligence and wit. Rhee and Salome quickly began to discuss establishing their own intellectual cadre, with the participants literally living together in a bohemian utopia. This in an era where a male and female living under the same roof for any reason would be considered scandalous. Into this intrigue, Friedrich Nietzsche finally arrived, and a meeting with the couple ensued at St. Peter's Basilica. His alleged greeting to Lou Salome while Rhee was preoccupied with recording his impressions of the cathedral was... From what stars have we fallen here to meet? From this point onward, Nietzsche would have two intense interactions with Lou Salome, one at the small lakeside town of Orta, chaperoned by Rhee and Lou's mother until the two went off on their own, and again in Lucerne with Rhee also present, while discussion of the formation of a trinity of philosophers was the supposed purpose of this meeting, Nietzsche and Rhee inculcating the willing student Salome, it is clear that other emotions were present, especially on Nietzsche's part. In her self-serving memoir written many years later, Lou Salome would claim that in Lucerne, Nietzsche would make his second marriage proposal, the type of awkwardly unrealistic action that probably guaranteed Nietzsche lifelong bachelorhood. Realistically, since Lou Salome's only income came from her inheritance, a small amount meant only until she married, she wasn't going to marry anybody, at least not then. From this afternoon also emerged a famous photograph of Lou Salome with the whip of lilacs driving the two philosophers who are tethered to a make-believe cart. From there, the strange group scattered, Nietzsche to his home in Naumburg, Rhee to his family home near Berlin, and both Salome's to Zurich. While Nietzsche hesitated to begin the process of a serious courtship, most likely because he knew his mother would be mortified by the mere mention of a relationship of any kind with such a young woman, re-wasted no time. He issued repeated written invitations to Lou Salome, which ultimately resulted in a two-month visit with Rhee's family of both mother and daughter. Only the most dense of suitors would not have understood the significance of this development, but Nietzsche pressed on. He concocted an elaborate plan whereby his sister Elizabeth, who intended to attend the Bayreuth Festival, would accompany Lou back to Nietzsche's rented summer retreat in the rustic German town of Tautenburg. In the past, Elizabeth Nietzsche had served as a governess for the Wagner children, and she was still looked upon fondly within the circle, especially by Cosima Wagner. Strangely enough, Lou Salome accepted these invitations. The farce would continue. Although initially cordial, Lou Salome and Elizabeth Nietzsche developed a deep animosity that was probably inevitable. Elizabeth, a dour spinster and intellectually less gifted than her brother, would have been greatly put off by a younger, more attractive, and unusually assertive female who did not hesitate to engage in serious discussions with any number of male acquaintances. That Lou thoroughly enjoyed showing off her photograph of Nietzsche and Rhee, which would certainly be perceived as humiliating, was perceived by Elizabeth as a betrayal. 
she abruptly left Bayreuth for Naumburg, informing her brother by telegram that with regard to Lou Salome, he was on his own. Somehow, this hostility was shelved, and ultimately Nietzsche, his sister, and Lou Salome would meet up as planned and spend three weeks in the Tautenberg Forest. Most of the interaction between Nietzsche and Lou Salome would take place on discussion-filled walks along the wooded paths of the town. The main topics, specific winter plans for the intellectual trinity— Elizabeth, either jealous or perhaps understanding that her brother was ultimately being used to flatter a young woman's ego and that he would never get anywhere romantically, was not included and became quite distraught. Throughout the course of her visit, Lou Salome would send diary entries and letters to Paul Ree, indicating that several weeks into her stay, she was finding it all a little dull. Ree told her that he would be in Berlin on August 26th and urged her to join him there, which she subsequently did. Nietzsche returned home to Naumburg without his sister, and when his already curious mother received a scathing letter from Elizabeth describing the perceived improprieties regarding the relationship between Nietzsche and Lou Salome, Mrs. Nietzsche became so livid that her son immediately left the house and moved to Leipzig. Although Paul Rhee and Lou Salome would turn up there for several weeks and discuss the Trinity relocating to Paris, nothing came of it. Rhee and Lou Salome returned to Berlin, where they would live together as a couple until 1887, when Salome announced that she would be marrying another man, Carl Friedrich Andreas. While she assured Rhee that the marriage would remain celibate, he decided that such a relationship wasn't for him. He disappeared from intellectual circles, became a medical doctor, and lived on his family's estate for a decade until it was sold by his brother. On October 28, 1901, after spending a year living in a hotel in the upper Engadine town of Celerina, Reef Feller jumped to his death from an alpine path high above the nearby River Inn. Lou Salome would remain officially married to Andreas until he died in 1930. Along the way, she would be involved in relationships with everyone from Rainier Maria Rilke to Sigmund Freud. Although involved intimately with Rilke, the exact nature of her interaction with Freud, and various other men for that matter, is anybody's guess. She died in Germany in 1935, a trained psychoanalyst, popular novelist, and memoirist whose works have ultimately faded into obscurity. That this pathetic attempted courtship would be the major unrequited love of Nietzsche's life illustrates the level of his inability to conduct even the most mundane of male-female interaction. One might have expected a lot more from the individual who would ultimately proclaim, I am not a man, I am dynamite. With winter approaching and attempting to put this dreadful experience behind him, Nietzsche intended to return to familiar Genoa, but his landlady had rented his former workspace to another tenant. Christmas 1882 found him in Rapallo by himself, responding to the still caustic letters from his mother and sister with threats to return future correspondence unread. Despite what should have been a creatively suffocating mindset, Nietzsche began work on his most popular and provocative literature, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, A Work for All and None. He would write most of the first of the four sections of this novelistic departure from his typically aphoristic style in approximately 10 days. By mid-February 1883, Section 1 would be sent to Schmeitzner in Leipzig for publication. Mortality would intrude at about the same time when Nietzsche received word that Richard Wagner had suddenly died in Venice. While the composer's death was a shock and brought some degree of regret, it also brought the relief that Wagner would no longer be able to lead any critical opposition to his ideas. Nietzsche was finally able to return to Genoa, where he anxiously awaited news of the appearance of the first part of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, 
a process lengthened by the publishing company's typesetters being literally afraid of involvement with such a manuscript. In this work, told in the form of a fable, the main character, Zarathustra, from Zoroaster, is a prophet who proclaims various ideas concerning religion, spirituality, and humanity. Its prose style invoking powerfully descriptive imagery and dramatic language can only be described as unique in the annals of literature. In the very first words of Section 1, Nietzsche returns to a theme initially explored in The Joyous Science. Zarathustra ends an early chapter with the phrase that will eternally be linked to Nietzsche, God is dead. But unlike the frightened typesetters of Leipzig, Nietzsche was not concerned with the literal God as a physical entity. He meant the belief system that believers adhered to in traditional religion. In the modern world, they no longer had any relevance, hence dead. In Zarathustra, Nietzsche would also introduce another of his most misunderstood concepts, that of the Ubermensch, sometimes translated into English as Overman. These were individuals who would recognize the futility of religion and mentally and creatively transcend what Nietzsche believed to be the shackles limiting the unrealized mind. Unfortunately, some translations, and George Bernard Shaw, would refer to such a person as a superman, a term which ultimately would lead to disastrous misrepresentation. Nietzsche would also discuss the concept of eternal return or eternal recurrence, which differed from traditional Christianity's belief involving an infinite progression of time and an eternal soul. Eternal return proposed that time was cyclical and an individual's life would be repeated exactly by other individuals. This allowed a divergence away from the traditional religious concept of eternal life. Amidst such heady analysis, in early 1883, Nietzsche received a letter from his sister that improved his relationship with his family. They spent the spring together, looking throughout Italy for a suitable summer residence for Nietzsche until he decided he would return to the Engadine and the town of Silts Maria. Here he quickly finished the second section of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Reluctantly, he then headed home to Naumburg and more domestic turbulence, this time as the result of the romance of his sister with Dr. Bernhard Furster an ardent German nationalist and public anti-Semite. Franziska Nietzsche was alarmed by this relationship as Furster had been fired from both of his teaching positions after a notorious brawl in Berlin sparked by anti-Semitic outbursts, the type of violent incident that Nietzsche's devout mother would have found abhorrent. Even more troubling, Forster had decided to pursue the pan-Germanic idea of founding a purely German colony outside of Europe, in this case in Paraguay, and both mother and son wondered if Elizabeth might be joining him. Nietzsche was unsuccessful in discouraging his sister in this relationship and was doubly disappointed by her willingness to embrace anti-Semitic German nationalism, two concepts he found utterly repulsive. He spent the remainder of 1883 and the beginning of 1884 between Genoa and Nice, completing Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Even Nietzsche considered the fourth section of the book so potentially scandalous that he ordered 40 privately printed copies of the manuscript to be distributed only to close friends and like-minded intellectuals. Furster himself was not an evidence for any of the conflict within the Nietzsche household, as he was too busy wandering the South American continent, intent on finding the perfect spot for Nueva Germania. He kept in touch with Elizabeth Nietzsche via letter, and by the time he returned to Germany in March of 1885, there was no question that they would not only marry, but they would pursue their colony in Paraguay together. They wed on May 22nd, Wagner's birthday. Nietzsche refused his sister's request to give away the bride and would not even attend the ceremony, although he did send a gift. 
Ultimately, he became resigned to the prospect of his sister leaving for Paraguay, even agreeing to meet her husband once before the departure took place on February 15, 1886. Elizabeth had traded her lifelong dream of establishing a colony consisting of some of the brightest intellects in Europe for an uncertain foray into the heart of darkness with a small group of Aryan zealots. Bon voyage! Before she left, Elizabeth convinced an uncle to file a suit against Ernst Schmeitzner. The Leipzig publisher was verging on bankruptcy, but owed Nietzsche a substantial amount of money. Not for royalties, but for fees for the numerous pages of material the author had provided. While it would take almost a year, Nietzsche would prevail legally, receiving a substantial sum of money, as well as news that his university pension had been extended indefinitely. His initial publisher, Ernst Fritsch, would purchase the rights for all of Nietzsche's previous works from Schmeitzner, a development that would allow for second editions issued with new prefaces from the author. This project, as well as the issuance of Beyond Good and Evil, a return to the aphoristic style that predated Zarathustra, would consume most of 1886. For the next two years, Nietzsche continued his nomadic existence between Nice, Venice, the Engadine, and a new location, Turin. In rapid succession, he would produce On the Genealogy of Morals, The Wagner Case, Twilight of the Idols, The Antichrist, and Ecce Homo. In the pattern that he had established with Zarathustra, he would compose great portions of these manuscripts in bursts of seven to ten days, and then pause as if to mentally recharge. Early in 1888, Nietzsche would correspond with a Danish lecturer and critic, George Brandes, who was quite complimentary. Perhaps, as Nietzsche had always believed, his literary star was about to ascend. But as the year progressed, Friedrich Nietzsche began to act in an increasingly erratic fashion, sending longtime friends bombastic letters filled with anger over perceived slights or a lack of appropriate respect, ending these missives with demands that any future contact cease. Even the title of his final work, Ecce Homo, which means Behold the Man in Latin, derived from the words Pilate used to present a bound and whipped Jesus Christ to the mob in Jerusalem moments before the Messiah's crucifixion indicate a delusional mindset. The chapter headings with titles like Why I Write Such Good Books and Why I Am a Destiny would do little to diminish such a perception. Late in December of 1888, in a series of poetic verse, he would write, I come out of a hundred abysses into which no glance has yet dared wander. I know heights which no bird has flown. I have lived in ice. I have been burnt by a hundred snows. It seems to me that warm and cold in my mouth are other concepts. On January 3rd, 1889, on a street in Turin, Italy, Nietzsche, so the story goes, rushed to the aid of a horse that was being whipped as it reluctantly pulled a cart. Embracing the animal, he collapsed in the street and lost consciousness. His landlord, David Fino, was summoned, and Nietzsche was taken back to his lodgings. This was the exclamation point to weeks of increasingly bizarre interactions with the Fino family, including cacophonous piano playing at all hours of the day and night, claims of a forthcoming meeting in his hotel room with the king and queen of Italy, and fits of anger in which he violently tore up letters and papers. Nietzsche was examined by a doctor and sedated, but once his medication wore off, he continued to be greatly agitated. Fino's wife sent a telegram to Franz Overbeck, having been aware during Nietzsche's previous months of lucidity that the Basel professor was a close friend. Unbeknownst to the Finos, Nietzsche had been quite busy sending letters to various correspondents ranging from Bismarck with a copy of his latest book, Cosima Wagner addressing her as Princess Ariadne, my beloved, clearly some unresolved issues there, and to his former colleagues in Basel. 
After reading the bizarre letter sent to Jacob Burkhart and upon receiving the Fino telegram, Franz Overbeck realized that something quite drastic had occurred. He immediately proceeded to Turin to investigate. By the time he arrived, Nietzsche, shut up in his room, had taken to loud singing and manic dancing in the nude. The professor was clearly not well. Overbeck and a doctor recommended by the German consulate managed to coax a reluctant Nietzsche back to Basel on an overnight train ride from hell in which the great philosopher sang at the top of his lungs, accosted fellow passengers with gibberish, and attempted to remove his clothing. In Basel, Nietzsche was taken to a psychiatric clinic and examined by doctors for several days until Franziska appeared and convinced all concerned that her son, most likely only suffering a breakdown, would be better off near Naumburg in a psychiatric asylum in Jena. But this was no temporary condition. In both Basel and Jena, doctors would arrive at the same diagnosis, progressive syphilitic paralysis. Much of the basis for this conclusion came from Nietzsche himself, who claimed that he was infected during visits to brothels while stationed in the military. Academics have debated this conclusion with the same enthusiasm devoted to many other historical figures, ranging from Henry VIII to Vincent van Gogh. But the prognosis was quite clear. Friedrich Nietzsche was extremely mentally ill, and he was not going to get better. Sadly, his doctors concluded that there really wasn't anything they could do for him, believing that it would only be a couple of years before he died. On May 13, 1890, Nietzsche, now as docile as a child and in the custody of his mother, boarded a train from Jena bound for his former home in Naumburg. Here he would remain for seven years, spending most of his time seated on a second-story porch, occasionally mumbling a random phrase and impervious to the outside world, his meals administered by his mother. Perhaps this total lack of awareness was fortunate because around him swirled intrigue and machinations that would warp and ultimately almost destroy his literary legacy. Elizabeth Nietzsche returned to Naumburg in September of 1893. Things had not gone well in Paraguay. Her husband poisoned himself in 1889 after a lengthy drinking bout, perhaps understanding that the colony was doomed. A disgruntled colonist returned to Germany and published an account of his participation in Nueva Germania, essentially labeling Forster and his wife as pyramid scheme swindlers living large at the expense of the other residents. Still, Elizabeth stuck it out, returning in 1890 in an attempt to raise money and also to refute the negative publicity concerning the colony. She visited her mother and brother and witnessed the depth of his illness. Three years later, without admitting failure, she sold her colony real estate and headed back to Europe, another scheme already up her sleeve. Interest in Nietzsche's work began to increase after his collapse, but the inability of Nietzsche's mother, who was legally in control of his material, to make intelligent decisions about getting unpublished material into print constrained sales. As a remedy, she appointed her brother, Nietzsche's uncle, a respected minister, as a co-guardian of the literary estate. This did little to improve matters, as it was unlikely that a cleric would be too enthusiastic about a manuscript entitled The Antichrist or a complete Zarathustra howling that God is dead. But Uncle unexpectedly died in 1891, and his son became co-guardian. When Elizabeth reappeared, she recognized the economic potential of her brother's work and immediately began negotiating to consolidate all of the various rights and contracts under her control. This included removing her mother from her responsibility, a task that Elizabeth accomplished with both borrowed money, coercion, and the complicity of her cousin, the new co-guardian. As of February 1896, the Nietzsche archives were now the official location for the philosopher's documents, letters, and papers. 
the rights to her brother's published works as well as the Nietzsche archives would be solely controlled by Elizabeth Nietzsche. She would sidestep the maternal hostility this arrangement created by quickly moving herself and the archives to downtown Weimar. In an attempt to rewrite history and respond to individuals like Lou Salome, who were already writing about their experiences with Nietzsche, she released a very popular biography of her older brother. In it, she maintained, among other things, that he considered her his intellectual equal and was petty enough to imply that it was Nietzsche's grandmother and not his mother who most influenced him as a child. Appalled by this and other assertions and worn down and depressed by providing 24-hour care for her invalid son, it was not surprising that Franziska Nietzsche would become ill and die less than a year and a half later. Elizabeth didn't have the office space in Weimar to accommodate her brother, so she quickly persuaded a very wealthy patron and former acquaintance of Nietzsche, Meta von Salas, to buy a three-story villa as a suitable setting for her brother's last years. Once the house was purchased, Elizabeth decided it needed some appropriately luxurious improvements, and without telling the new owner, went ahead with the new construction. Von Salas was stuck with the bill, but at least got the satisfaction of accusing Elizabeth of exploiting the archive for her own benefit. By then, Friedrich Nietzsche was installed as the centerpiece of his sister's shrine to his work, trotted out occasionally for especially wealthy potential patrons and responding to any visitors with a blank stare. Mercifully, he succumbed to a heart attack on August 25, 1900. For the next 35 years, Elizabeth Nietzsche would impose her considerable influence on the public perception of Friedrich Nietzsche. She would literally forge whole volumes like The Will to Power, a collection of former notebooks, to make it resemble her own anti-Semitic nationalist viewpoint. She would help provide a much-reduced and less controversial Zarathustra to thousands of German soldiers serving during World War I. Militarists and fascists intent on avenging Germany's post-war honor would seize on Nietzsche's language to construct a philosophy guided by violence and destruction. Elizabeth Nietzsche would enthusiastically support the ascendance of Adolf Hitler, inviting him in 1934 to the Nietzsche archive for a photo op and proclaiming that her brother would have been just as supportive. Hitler had probably read little of Nietzsche's work, but he certainly grasped what the purported endorsement of an internationally famous intellectual would mean to the image of his inner circle, generally perceived as a motley crew of unsophisticated thugs. The Superman theory could also be perverted nicely into the Nazi viewpoint of master race, military might, and eugenics. Elizabeth Nietzsche died in 1935 before she could witness the horror brought on by the fanatically anti-Semitic nationalist movement that her brother predicted in his lifetime would sow nothing but chaos and the complete annihilation of Germany. Unfortunately, by 1946, Nietzsche was so identified with Nazism that East German authorities would shut down the Nietzsche archive, disappear the curator, and ban Nietzsche's works entirely. Not until 1991 and German reunification would the building be reopened to the public. Over time, as scholars unraveled the influence of Elizabeth Nietzsche and re-examined the concepts of an existential philosophy that meshed with the cultural upheavals that transpired in the second half of the 20th century, the work and literary reputation of Friedrich Nietzsche enjoyed a tremendous renaissance. His mother's house in Naumburg is now a museum, and he is buried in the graveyard of his father's former church at Rocken. His words, one must pay dearly for immortality, one has to die many times while still alive, might have been the best of many suitable epitaphs.
Thank you for listening to this podcast about Friedrich Nietzsche. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Nietzsche, Philosopher, Psychologist, Antichrist by Walter Kaufman, Friedrich Nietzsche by Curtis Kate, Forgotten Fatherland, The Search for Elizabeth Nietzsche by Ben McIntyre, and The Good European, Nietzsche's Work Sites in Word and Image by David Farrell Krell. For information on how to access this material and for additional podcasts, please visit my website at someveryfamouspeople.com.